0: 2016 I got off a plane in Atlanta and knew something uh, was terribly wrong. I, I frantically searched through my luggage and uh, it, it wasn't there. I had left my uh, Kindle paperwhite uh, on the airplane and my prized reading possession for years. I started to run back uh, but noticed that the gate was already closed. It was over. Uh, Delta Airlines was now the proud owner of my favorite way to read books. It really ruined the rest of the trip for me. That's all I, I thought about. And so when I finally got home, I started to do some research on how to get this little device back. Um, now, I don't know if you know this, uh, but um, after a while, unclaimed baggage gets sent to a place in Scottsboro, Alabama, and then it's resold for a cheap price. There's a, Their slogan uh, to their store is Uh, Literally, it's the nation's top lost luggage store. So I quickly found the lost luggage page on Delta because I didn't want that to become uh, my story. And um, I had very little hope that i ever see this thing again. I I really just didn't want to spend money on a new device. So I sent in the request, never heard anything back. Months went by, no reply. And uh, to be fair, I just completely forgot about it at that point. Tried to read real books like uh, regular people, and uh, eight days before Christmas that year, I got a small uh, brown package in the mail, and it was a a Christmas miracle. Delta had found my Kindle and then mailed it back to me. And I realize it can seem uh, silly to care so much about like a little electronic uh, device, but the truth is, like that little device has helped calm my anxiety and stress. Uh, in ways other things can't. Uh, when I go to bed at night, like I try to t- not to take my phone with me, I do not need all of the world's access to all the world's information and all of the world's problems uh, in, like before I go to sleep and the first thing when I wake up. Uh, so I leave my phone in the kitchen, and then I read a book at night. That's my thing. I've done it for years. I tell people religiously they should do the same, because I truly believe that reading has a calming effect on our minds. Reading, uh, for me, a healthy fiction book uh, slows my mind down from like, just this rat race of life. It forces me to think about something other than the things that I stress about. It's uh, incredibly therapeutic. So I don't think it's a coincidence that God's primary way of communicating to his children is through the written word. I don't think it's a coincidence that our entire faith is built on the testimony of a book. And while recreational reading is healthy in our lives, the reading of the Bible is life-changing because when we read the Bible, we're not reading a collection of fictional stories or just some historical facts. No, when we read the Bible, we are literally reading the Word of God, and I want to show you From the Bible today, why reading God's word is the primary way that you and I can quiet our restless hearts. If you're here this morning and you're like, man, I am stressed out of my mind. My life feels so out of control. My schedule is insanely busy and chaotic. I barely have enough time to breathe, my first question to you would be how much are you reading the word and i want to show you how and why that question is not a paradox to a busy life let me show you how and why reading the word quiets our heart in hebrews 4 is where we'll be today if you have a digital bible i'll read out of the esv you have a bulletin um just a heads up: I'm going to be reading more than what is in the bulletin. So, if you have a physical Bible or the Bible app on your phone, you're definitely going to want that. Um, but before we walk through the text together, let's pray. God, I uh, um, I'm thankful to come into. Your presence with brothers and sisters in Christ to lift up the name of Jesus. And um, God, it's, it's not an accident that you have given us a book. It was on purpose. You've given us the, the written word to, to stop our lives. For so many of us, for those in this room, for those that listen to this message, God, for so many of us, our lives are nonstop. So to press pause and and read is so countercultural today. And so God, God, teach us how to slow down our minds, not just to read uh, books, fictional books, God, but to read your word that will change, literally change our life. God, give us understanding in Hebrews 4, an understanding of your rest that we cannot find anywhere else. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. At some point in the next few years, we'll walk through the book of Hebrews together. But for the sake of context, we at least need to hear more than Hebrews 4 11 through 16. Because in chapters 3 and 4, we have an important conversation on the topic of rest for God's people. So if you have a Bible, I'm, I'm going to actually, I'm going to start reading in Hebrews 3, chapter 3, verse 7. This won't be on the screen. Um, so again, you can follow along with your Bible or your phone. And if not, just listen, and then you can pick us, uh, pick back up with us in Hebrews four eleven. But this is what Hebrews 3, starting in verse 7, says. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to test and saw my works for 40 years, though, therefore I was provoked with, th- with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways and I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. So take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another every day as long as it is still called today that none of you may heart be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if we indeed hold our original confidence firm and to the end. As it said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? For those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, and as he has said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The writer of, um, of Hebrews, he takes us back to the scenes of Exodus. Israel, the people of God, they've been rescued from slavery in Egypt. Uh, Israel has uh, seen the promised land of Canaan, and yet as soon as they see the enemy of Canaan, they recoil in fear and disobedience. And see, God has miraculously saved them from Egypt, but they refuse to believe that he will do it again. They literally reject in disobedience and unbelief the promised rest. Listen to their foolishness in Numbers 14, starting in verse 1. And all of the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it it not be better for us just to go back to Egypt? They said to one another, well... Well, let's just choose a, a leader, and we'll go back to Egypt ourselves. See, what we see in Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, is actually actually a quote from uh, Psalm 95, 7 through 11. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. And then verse 11, I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest And the writer carries on in verses 12 through 14, a verse I often read when we introduce new members to our church, an an encouragement to the saints to not fall away from the living God. It says, encourage one another every day. Hold fast to the confidence that you have in Christ until the end. That's a strong warning for us this morning. Not that we might miss out on some sort of temporary rest, but far more terrifying that we might miss out on the rest of heaven. So regardless of your soteriology or how you understand salvation in the word, we can all agree that if you're not going to follow Jesus until the end, you have not truly shared in Christ. That's not, that's not my words. That's the words of Hebrews three fourteen. The context of this section is that God would not allow the disobedient and unbelieving men and women of Israel to enter into the promised land. God didn't even allow Moses to enter into the promised land. No, it was Joshua and Caleb and the younger generations that would enter. Friends, we didn't gather to just chat about a relaxing location. As if, like, the preacher's just gonna give us a new vacation spot to fix the restlessness in our own hearts. That's not why the writer of Hebrews brings up Canaan. He is using Canaan as an example of something far greater than a place on a map. Which is why it says in Hebrews 4.8, if Joshua had given them rest, well then God wouldn't have spoken about another day of rest later on. Like, that would have been the end of it. Like, if if Joshua took them to Canaan, and and then they're just good to go. They never sinned again, they never had issues again, they never doubted again, they never wrestled again. No, none of that's true if you read your Bibles, because the rest that is found in the promised land was only meant to point to a greater rest in God. Or as verse 9 put it, a Sabbath rest, or God's rest. See, our our restless hearts this morning are longing for something that only God can provide. And Israel felt that one in their bones. And I trust we, we feel that longing this morning, which is why we get to Hebrews 4, verse 11, if you want to follow along with me. Verse 11 says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than to- any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has emptied, has, been, has, has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And then verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The question is very similar to the question last week. Probably be the same sort of question every week for this series. How does the word quiet our heart? That's the question I'm going to answer this morning in the text. And you might be thinking, like, really, why the word I mean, why couldn't I give you 10 steps to become a more rest-filled person? Why does it always come back to things like, man, you just need to pray more, or you just need to read your Bible more? And the answer is in the context of what we just studied and read. You and I, we don't have a problem adding more things on our life. That's not why we're restless. You and I have a problem obeying what we already know. Meaning disobedience to God's word is the primary reason why you and I are so filled with anxious hearts and busy schedules that have no eternal value. Disobedience is the reason why Israel did not enter into the rest of the promised land. Disobedience is the main reason why you and I might never find that true rest. That's why we need to pray more. That's why we need to read our Bibles more. Those two things alone help keep us from the disobedience that leads to restlessness. Or let me put it like this. Disobedient hearts are never quiet hearts. They are filled with passion and greed and lust and anger and desire for the things of the world. They're consumed with news and pop culture. They're overwhelmed with social media and technology but I can promise you, they are not quiet hearts. So this morning, let me show you why the word quiets our hearts from Hebrews 4, 11 through 16. Here's point one if you're a note taker. The, the word calls us to work toward rest. The word calls us to work towards rest. Here's what I know about uh, every person in this room, and every person that will ever listen to this message. This is what I know that's true about you. You did not have to work towards being busy. No, that just happened. There's never been a time in my life I had to plan and work towards busyness. It just happened. I began to slowly say yes to anything and everything in my life and all of a sudden, like I'm suffering in some bloated schedule You didn't have to work toward being busy, but here's the reality. You will have to work toward rest. See, the goal of this series was never to create a bunch of lazy Christians as if we're all just exhausted and the preacher gave us more permission to be apathetic than we actually are. The problem of American Christianity is not that American Christians aren't working. No, they're working. The problem with American Christianity is that American Christians are often working at the wrong thing. See, work and rest, they're not opposing ideologies of the faith. Rest and work existed before the fall of humanity in Genesis 3-4. In Hebrews, chapter 3 and 4 are not isolated in application. They go together. So if you want rest in your life this morning, you and I better be willing to work for it. Verse 11, it says, let us strive to enter into that rest, the understanding of that language is to let us become zealous to enter rest. Is that language not insanely countercultural? Like our culture thinks, like work precedes rest, and in some ways, yeah, it does. But what we're seeing in verse eleven is that we're actually called to work at being rested. That's a new idea for a lot of us. Like if, if you really want to stop being a restless saint, it's going to take a lot of work that you and I must become zealous in that pursuit. And the context of that pursuit in Hebrews 4, 11 through 13 is actually a pursuit of God's Word. Or let me put it as plainly as possible, the greatest work of rest is reading your Bible. And you might think, like, yeah, but I don't like to read. That's why it's work. And you might think, yeah, but I, I don't have time to read. That's why it's work. And you might think, well, yeah, but I don't, I, don't, like, I don't understand everything in the Bible. That's why it's work. Are you becoming zealous to read and know God's Word? It calls you to make time to, during your day to read. It calls you to study and study and study until you understand, like a little those Old Testament parts, just a little bit better than you did before. It calls you to stop the craziness of your schedule, to slow down enough to actually read. For me, I try to read through the Bible uh, every year. I don't do special devotions. I don't do reading plans. That has never worked for me. So I literally, Corey would know. I literally, I usually just buy a Bible off Amazon, that's $20 or, or under, and I wake up every morning, and I grab my Bible, and I pray, and I read, and I underline things that stick out to me. Am I perfect in that? No. Do I miss days in that? Of course. But that is a practical, passionate pursuit of God in my life. I shared a quote last week from uh, Kevin DeYoung's book, Crazy Busy, and I think It's helpful. I had to share another quote from that today. He says, what would someone conclude is the one thing you must get done every day? Folding laundry, cleaning the house, catching up on emails, posting on Facebook, mowing the lawn, watching the game. I know you have things to do. I have plenty to do myself. But out of all the concerns in our life, can we honestly say and show that sitting at the feet of Jesus is the one thing that is necessary? See one of the greatest deceptions in our life is really to believe that like we just don't have time for God. In reality, you have just enough time to do exactly what you really value. The Word calls us to work at reading the Word. But the second half of verse 11 says, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, which is where we get point two. So how does the Word quiet our heart? Two, the Word exposes our deepest motivations. Um, I grew up in church uh, and constantly heard people tell me, Read your Bible. I mean, I I think I just kind of actually told you all that. Read your Bible. And that charge has been on repeat in my life since I was a little kid. And maybe you've heard that a thousand times in church. Read your Bible. And if that's all you know, like, it's difficult to see why it would matter. You've got a lot going on in your life. You're dealing with a lot of physical issues or mental health issues. You're battling with family drama. It's easy to to hear, read your Bible and think, yeah, what is that going to fix? So it's important for us to look at verses 12 through 13 because those verses share why the Bible is unlike any book. Those two verses share why the Bible is powerful and necessary in our life. First, look at the nature of the Bible in verse 12. The nature of the Bible is the word of God is living and active, meaning just because the canon of the Bible is closed or just because we're not adding new revelation to the Bible doesn't mean that the Bible ceases to be alive and active as we read it. In fact, the living word is the thing that causes your dead heart to become alive. This is Ephesians 1, starting in verse 13. In him, in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, The gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the very nature of the word is living. That's why it's powerful. As we read it, as we preach it, we are interacting with the living words of God that have the power to change our life. Every other book will one day cease to exist. Every other written word will one day cease to exist. But the very nature of the Bible is living and active and will remain forever. It says this in First Peter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So through the living and abiding word of God, for all. "...all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you." That's the nature of the word. But secondly, look at the function of the word as verse 12 continues. It says, "...for the word of God is living and active, and then it's sharper than any two-edged sword." piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God often described as like some sort of sword in the New Testament. See this in Ephesians 6, verse 17. It says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then again, more clearly in Revelation, two different verses, Revelation one sixteen, in his right hand, Hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and from his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Chapter 19, verse 15, And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This word, sharper than any two-edged sword, is capable of getting into your heart this morning in ways you never thought were possible. Soul and spirit, like they seem, they seem impossible to reach. And I would say maybe certainly impossible to separate. That's the visual verse 12 gives us. The Word is capable of, what, of doing what nothing else on the planet can do. The Word of God does surgery on our heart. It gets into your soul and spirit. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of your heart. It exposes your deepest motivation. That's why so many people say to me, and I heard it last week, I feel like this message was written just for me. I feel like I needed to hear that message today. Man, I feel like the preacher was talking right at me. Look, we're not a bunch of magicians in the pulpit as if I went to Hogwarts and not seminary. I have no tricks or spells. I have the word. It is the word of God that is peeling back your deepest motivations, not a man with a microphone. That's why East River Park makes reading and teaching of the word the highest ministry priority. That's why expository teaching or just teaching through the word is literally the very first value of the church we know there's nothing else we can offer you that will actually change your heart. That's why you and I need to read the book. You want some rest in your life. It will require the work of reading the Word. That requires the often painful surgery the Word provides. So the Bible will expose your deepest motivations. The Bible will lay you out naked before your creator. How in the world could that be restful? Growing up in church, like I heard verses 11 through 13 a lot. And then no one, no one went on to verses 14 through 16. How could it be restful to have all of your problems exposed before the Lord, whom you and I must give an account? See, it's restful because the same Lord that exposes our sin is the same Lord that understands our sin and is the same Lord that has paid for our sin. How does the word quiet our heart? Here's point three. The word brings us to the throne of grace. The text is clear. We have a great high priest named Jesus, the Son of God. He's the great high priest of God because he is also the sacrificial lamb of God. Meaning Jesus, he offered the final sacrifice to satisfy God's law by dying for us on the cross. So among many things, Christ Jesus, he is the great high priest, and he is also the Lamb of God. Which is remarkable for reasons we see in verses 14 through 16. First, Jesus, he's, he's able to to sympathize with our weakness. That Jesus, the great high priest, was not above being tempted as we are. He understands. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He, He explains temptation well. He says, A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like in an hour. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. And we never find out the strength of the evil impulse until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation really means. The only complete realist. Friends, you're not battling anything in this life that Jesus was not tempted with. Like Jesus, he deeply cares that your heart is restless because he understands and knows what it's like to be tempted to have a restless heart. Jesus deeply cares like when your schedule feels out of control and stressful and hanging on by a thread he deeply cares because he knows what it's like to be tempted in a thousand other different directions so in every respect Christ was tempted as we are and yet he did not sin that's remarkable there once was two brothers Youngest of the two packed all his belongings, moved far away from home, a distant land, a land where really no one could see him or find him in his foolishness. Plenty of money in his pocket. He just enjoyed life. He partied, and he partied hard until all his money was gone. And what was once this full bank account was now emptied with food and drink and prostitutes. The younger son had destroyed his life in disobedience. He took a job. Uh, honestly, it was pretty embarrassing. Barely paid the bills, eating what the animals were eating. Like, how could, how could he possibly go home and that? After all he had been through and after all the mess that he had made, could he ever really go home? I mean, everyone has a breaking point here this morning. And the younger brother is no different. He gave up his wild ways, uh, headed back to his father's house. His dad saw him from afar, took off running, filled with love, compassion for his boy, hugged him, kissed him, clothed him with the best, threw a party for him. And in the shadows, the older brother watched. How? How could his dad do this to him? I mean, he didn't run away from home. He didn't blow all his money. He stayed and worked on the farm. How could his dad possibly celebrate the younger brother when he was the one that had been so perfect? Don't you see it, son? His father said. All that I had was already yours, but... but your brother, he was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, and now he is found. And at the end of the day, both brothers failed to see the grace and love of their father. And one needed to run home, and the other one just needed to realize what he had at home. You need to understand that Jesus, he really is the rest you're looking for. He's the rest you either need to run home to or the rest that's literally right in front of your face. Verse 16 is so remarkable because Jesus did not sin. He's the great high priest. He's the final sacrifice and then he is offering us the throne of grace. That's why we confidently run home to Jesus because we know that when we do, we'll be met with mercy, and we'll be met with grace to help in time of need. Y'all, some of us need to run to Jesus for the very first time. And I'd say, being in the Bible Belt and knowing uh, most of you all here this morning, most of you all just need to realize what's right in front of your face. Jesus, sees the word. Why would you try to quiet your heart with anything else? word that calls us to work toward rest that exposes our deepest motivations that brings us to the throne of grace the main point is simple if you haven't already filled it in restless Saints must quiet their heart in the word Uh, we we did this a few weeks ago when we didn't have um, a closing song uh, scheduled and so we're gonna do it again I thought it was helpful I'm going to play a worship song on the screen and, and I ask that you and I quietly use this time to just respond to the word, reflect on Hebrews 4. Read it again, pray. Confess our lack of spending time in the word. Confidently approach the throne of grace and then when the song's done, uh, I'll come back up and pray and then we'll uh, close this out.